0: If you have a Bible, turn please to Luke chapter 16. In the church Bible, that's page 1049. Luke 16, and we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 13. Jesus told his disciples. People will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe, my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word. Of all Jesus' stories or parables, this is certainly one of if not the most difficult to understand. Part of the reason for that is it seems to command dishonesty. Also, this doesn't tend to be one of our favorite parables. Last week we looked at the parable of the father and his two sons. We know it more commonly as the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. That's quite rightly a favorite for many of us. This one probably isn't anyone's favorite. Partly that's because it's hard to understand. But partly also because the subject is money and possessions. We like to hear about God the Father's love for us. We're not so keen on being told what to do with our wealth and possessions. And yet someone has worked out that a fifth of Jesus' teaching is about money. So this is a major theme for Jesus. And if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, then we'll be concerned to hear what Jesus says about our money and possessions. We'll be concerned to bring our lives in line with Jesus' teaching. And in fact, the first line of chapter 16 tells us Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. In chapter 15, the parable of the father and his two sons was aimed specifically at the Pharisees. This one is for us, for all those who call themselves disciples or who are considering becoming disciples. So let's look at this. First, we'll look at the story itself. And then we'll see that Jesus gives us the point of the story and then he gives us three applications of the story. So actually, Jesus works hard to make sure that we know what the story means and also what it means for our lives. First then, in verse 1 through to the beginning of verse 8, the story of the smart manager. In verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. The rich man, who's also called the master, is only a minor figure in this story. He only appears at the beginning and the end. But here we're told that his manager has been accused of dishonesty. The manager or steward would have been a slave, either a slave who grew up in the master's house and was trained to manage the business, Or he may have been someone who sold himself into slavery to get this job. This kind of job was seen as a high status position. So going from being a poor free man to being a slave who managed the affairs of a wealthy master, that was actually a step up in society. And that reminds us that the kind of slavery we're dealing with in Bible times was very different From the slavery we know about in British and American history. Many slaves, not all, but many, chose to become slaves in this society. It provided financial security. And if you had a good master, you were well provided for. But in the case of this manager or steward, his comfortable situation has come to an end. We're not told if the accusations made against him are true. He may have had enemies who were making things up to get rid of him. He may have been totally innocent. But the significant point is that the master believes the accusations. And he tells the manager to close up the books and hand them in. In verse 2, Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The master isn't going to listen to any debate. He's already made up his mind. And the manager has a major problem. If he leaves in these circumstances, who else is going to employ him as a manager? And he doesn't see anything else that he can do. In verse 3, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. What he needs, he decides, is friends who will take him in. Maybe offer him a job. And so he comes up with an idea in verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. It turns out his idea is to win friends by slashing people's debts to his now ex-master. In this culture, if you did someone a favor, they owed you back. So the manager is going to do a lot of big favors. Look again at verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The master told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it four hundred. The debt here is equivalent to over three years salary. And it gets cut in half. Some commentators have suggested the manager is just taking off his own commission from the bill. But it's hard to see how his commission would be that big. I think the most obvious way to read this is probably the correct way. The manager is taking the amount rightfully owed to his ex-master and he's slashing it. Jesus confirms this when he calls the manager dishonest in verse 8. He's not sacrificing anything himself. He's hurting his master's profits. But most importantly from his point of view... He's handing out a whole load of favors that he can call in later. Favors given at his master's expense. And it does seem that the two bills mentioned in the text are only examples of many bills that he slashed. Verse 5 says he called in each one of his master's debtors. This manager has taken care of his future very nicely. And in verse 8, Jesus gives us the punchline of the story. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Why doesn't the master do something? Clearly, he's found out what has happened. It may be that he's just a gracious man, he's just glad to get rid of a bad manager. He's not going to try and recoup his losses. But whatever the case, the significant point to notice is why the master commanded the manager. It wasn't because of his dishonesty. It was because of his shrewdness. He has been dishonest, but that's not what the master commands him for. Shrewdness is another name for craftiness or artfulness, as in the artful dodger. Or astuteness, and the word I've used is smartness. Some of those words can have negative connotations, but they don't necessarily have negative connotations. In other words, it's possible to be shrewd in a good or a bad way. And what the master seems to be saying to this manager is, I've got to hand it to you. You're not a reliable manager, but you have a great business head. You're very smart when it comes to doing well for yourself in a tough situation. So the whole story zeroes in on this man's craftiness. It's not about his dishonesty. It's about that quality of smartness that he shows. A quality that can be used for bad or for good. And then immediately Jesus drives home the point of the story. Followers of Jesus must be smart too. Look at the second half of verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. The people of the light are God's people. In John's first letter, he says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And John goes on to say that if we belong to God, then we will walk in the light as he is in the light. In other words, our lives will be filled with what is good and right and true. So by talking here about people of the light, Jesus has made clear the point of connection between God's people and this story. God's people are to share the manager's smartness, not his dishonesty. The people of this world in the New Testament usually means either those who live in rebellion against God or who live without regard for God. And here Jesus says to his disciples, Look how smart those people can be. Yes, they can be dishonest and rebellious, but look how astute and artful they can be in their spheres of work and life. Now, Jesus says, my disciples need to show that same quality of astuteness in their lives. Their lives as people of the light. My disciples, Jesus says, need to be one step ahead in their thinking. They need to be ahead of the game in their thinking. They need to be smart. Or as Jesus puts it in Matthew's gospel, his disciples need to be as shrewd as snakes, even while they're also being as innocent as doves. That comment is found in Matthew 10, 16. We are to match the world around us in smartness, even as we avoid the dishonesty of this world. At this point, our minds could run wild with all the possible applications of this. But Jesus isn't finished yet. He's going to give us the applications he wants us to make from this. He gives us three. Each application follows on from the other. We find the first in verse 9. We must use what we have to prepare for our eternal future. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. If we only look at the first half of this verse, it seems Jesus is asking us to do exactly what the dishonest manager did do favors so we can call in favors. Put people under obligation so we can count on them to help us out later. But the second half of the verse shows that's not what Jesus means. In fact, verse 9 is a reference back to verse 4. In verse 4, the dishonest manager said to himself, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. In verse 9, Jesus says... Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The manager was using worldly wealth to prepare for his earthly future. We're to use worldly wealth to prepare for our eternal future. Eternal dwellings means the new heaven and earth, or as Jesus has put it in recent weeks, God's banquet, the feast in the kingdom of God. No one can deny the manager was smart when it came to setting up a good future for himself in this life. We're to be as smart in preparing for eternity. And when we substitute the focus from earthly future onto eternal future, it makes a vast difference to what we do with our wealth. Probably not many of us here think of ourselves as being wealthy. But the truth is, we all have a certain amount of wealth and possessions at our disposal. How do we use them to prepare for eternity? Well, Jesus helps us to answer that question. Firstly, he says we're to use it. In other words, we're not to hoard it. That's what verse 9 says. An uncle of mine was a very successful businessman, and he planned meticulously for his retirement. He spent years piling up cash and investments. And he decided that each year was going to be split between so many months at his villa in Tenerife and so many months back at his apartment in London. He hadn't been retired a year when he took a massive heart attack and died on the bathroom floor of his villa in Tenerife. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't accept the biblical truth that our times are in God's hands. But as Christians, we do accept that truth. So we ought to be smarter about our future than he was. We ought to know that hoarding cash for decades to come is not smart. God doesn't guarantee we'll have decades to come. If we're smart disciples... Then we'll use the wealth we have, not hoard it. God has given us whatever wealth we have. Hoarding it amounts to keeping what doesn't belong to us. It's keeping our hands on kingdom money. I'm not saying we should all go home today, liquidate all our assets, and put it all in a single check for Christian work. But I am saying, and I think Jesus is saying, Let's keep our wealth flowing out of our hands and into kingdom channels. Yes, God supplies us so we can live and be fed and clothed, and in most of our cases, way more than just fed and clothed. But if we're smart disciples, we won't be hoarding for some non-guaranteed future on this earth. We'll be using our wealth with our guaranteed eternal future in mind. I'm not saying we shouldn't have any savings or retirement fund. But as Jesus says in verse 9, someday our worldly wealth will be gone. Or we could translate that, someday it will feel. If we're looking to it for security, we're going to be sorely disappointed and let down. We'd better be prepared for the day when we have to leave wealth and possessions behind. It's better to put them to work today with eternal goals in mind. One writer says, use money in a way that pleases God and serves him. So we're to use it. And then Jesus tells us how we're to use it, to gain friends for ourselves. What does he mean by that? Well, we know from previous chapters that our generosity is not to take into account what payback we'll get in this life. Remember Jesus' words in verse chapter 14. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Or we could think of the story of the Good Samaritan back in Chapter 10. The Samaritan didn't stop to calculate what he'd get back from the man he helped. I think we can assume, too, that Jesus isn't calling for generosity just for the sake of generosity. He wants generosity for the sake of God's kingdom. Generosity that backs up the good news about Jesus. Generosity that enables people more and more people to hear the good news about Jesus. Some time ago now, we had a visit from Peter Parkinson, who works, in fact, who heads up, caring for life. Many of you were there when he came. And he encouraged us to give our money to Christian gospel-centered ministries. His reasoning was, yes, there are lots of worthy causes around But as Christians, he said, we should give to work that offers the gospel alongside whatever else it does. Let non-Christians supply the other worthy charities and causes. Because non-Christians certainly won't be giving to gospel work. And I think that's a helpful approach. Let's channel what wealth we can To organizations working not just to help men and women in this life, but to help them prepare for eternity. When we do that, we're making friends who will be with us for eternity. Jo Lloyd isn't here this week, but soon we'll hear from her about her plans for next year when she finishes university. She's going to stay and work with university Christian unions for a year. And giving to support Joe through that year may well win friends that we won't meet until eternity. Students in Wales who commit to Jesus as a result of Joe's work. Let's use our worldly wealth to gain friends for eternity. One day the wealth will be gone. But if we've used it well, the legacy will last for all eternity. We find Jesus' second application in verses 10 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus says our handling of what we've been entrusted with in this life reveals what we will be entrusted with in the next. The very little in verse 10 means worldly wealth. The much equals eternal wealth. No matter how much worldly wealth we have, it amounts to very little in the big scheme of things. Jesus is saying if you don't use something as insignificant as worldly wealth well, then you won't use eternal wealth well. That's what Jesus says, but notice how he says it. He says the worldly wealth we have has been trusted to us. That means trusted to us by God. And if we don't use it well, Jesus says, then we're being dishonest with it. That's a pretty sobering insight. We may think our wealth is ours. After all, we've worked hard to earn it. But the Bible's perspective is, who gave you the health and strength to work hard? Who gave you the mind to learn and earn your qualifications? Who gave you the talent to do well? Who gave you the diligence to apply yourself? God gave you all of that. So whatever you earn is God's. To use it as if it's yours is dishonest. And if we're dishonest with what God gives us here on earth, why would he give us anything in the new heaven and earth? If we don't live to serve his kingdom now, why would we live to serve it in eternity? Jesus is calling us to be smart shrewd and using our money like it's ours is not smart not in eternal terms so Jesus says in verse 13 choose your master no servant can serve two masters either he will hate the one and love the other Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some of you have noticed as we've been going through Luke that Jesus often puts things in very black and white terms. He talks in either or categories. And here he does it again. Either or. You can't serve two masters. You have to choose one. You can't live for wealth in this life and wealth in the next life. And our response might be, why not? Of course I can serve God and money. I give this much of my energy to pursuing wealth in this world and this much to pursuing wealth in the next. Easy. Wealth is not inherently evil. It's not inherently bad. If it was, God would never bless us with wealth. But at the end of the day, there are only two attitudes we can have towards wealth. We either see it as something that belongs to God and is to be used for God, or we see it as ours, to be used as we want. Now, we might see it as ours and still want to give some away. We might want to use some to do good. But if we see it as ours, then as far as we're concerned, it's still up to us to decide. But Jesus says if you have that attitude, then God isn't God anymore. He's someone who gets whatever leftovers you decide to give him. We might think the opposite of God being God would be us being God. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, if God isn't God of our money, then our money will be God of us. And that's exactly how things work out. If God is God of our money, then our money has no control over us. It can come and go. And our contentment stays unchanged. If our contentment and our motivation is not tied to money, then losing it can't ruin things for us. Our contentment is tied to God himself. But if we try to take control of our money, then our money takes control of us. It becomes the God that we get out of bed for. The God we work for and bend the rules for and trample on other people for. Money dictates our decisions in life. It becomes the Lord of our happiness and contentment. And it will never allow us happiness and contentment. Two weeks ago, Time magazine had this little statistic. Four out of ten millionaires say they don't feel rich. Many said they would need at least 7.5 million in order to feel truly wealthy. Of course, you and I hear that and we say, idiots, I'd be content with a million. That would be enough for me. No, it wouldn't. Ecclesiastes says whoever loves money never has money enough. And that is consistently true. Because the person who loves money is serving money. When it comes to money, it's not a choice between God or us in the driving seat, it's God or money in the driving seat. The New Testament gives us a perfect and a tragic example of this. Judas Iscariot appeared to be a disciple of Jesus. He traveled around with Jesus. He went out on preaching missions for Jesus. But John's Gospel gives us insight into what Judas was actually serving. John says, as keeper of the money bag, Judas used to help himself to what was put into it. Before long, we read that Judas went to the religious leaders and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. I doubt that Judas started out with a plan to betray Jesus. He didn't join the disciples with that intention. But Judas discovered that no one, not even one of the twelve disciples, can serve God and money. Unless God is God of our money, then sooner or later we will deny God for money. Now, no one will ever do it as spectacularly as Judas did. But every time it happens, the results are eternally disastrous. Choose your master. Jesus is calling us to be smart, crafty, astute. We're being smart if we first of all recognize who owns our money. And then if we use our money for God's kingdom. When we do that, we're preparing for life 10 million, 20 million, 30 million years from now. And that's much smarter than limiting our horizon to 20 or 30 years ahead. If we do that, we might gain the whole world, but we will lose our soul. Passages like this are very difficult for all of us. We hear this and we think, how do I live this out? I want God to be God of my money, but what does that mean? Can I ever go out to eat? Can I ever buy new clothes? Can I put an extension in my house? How often can I change my car? It's tempting for us to think if we just had a rule book for all this, like the Chancellor's Book of Tax Regulations, apparently that runs to thousands of pages, covering every eventuality. But don't you see, if we had a book like that, we'd end up like the Pharisees, with their lists of rules and regulations. We'd fall into keeping the rules and ignoring our hearts. Jesus refuses even to give us a percentage figure for what we can use on ourselves. The Old Testament required that a tenth be given back to God. Jesus doesn't give us a percentage like that. Why? Because it's easy to give a set figure without giving your heart and Jesus wants our hearts. He calls us to make him our treasure. So I don't know whether you should eat out this week or buy a new dress this week. I don't know if you should put an extension on your house. I can't answer those questions for you. Each of us has to do the hard work of searching our own hearts, not our neighbor's hearts, our own hearts. We have to be brutally honest with ourselves. And we probably need to ask someone we trust to be brutally honest with us. When it comes to money and God, who is our master? What answer do our lives give to that question? Because what we say has very little to do with it. None of us would say money is our master. Our lives will give the answer. What evidence do others see in our lives? Do we cheerfully enjoy the wealth God blesses us with? And do we cheerfully channel as much as we can towards his kingdom? Are we as happy when our wealth is gone as when we have it? Or does the evidence show that money has us under its thumb? Do we make our decisions to serve money and stuff or to serve God's kingdom? We live in a society that worships wealth. Do we blend in or do we stand out? Let's keep asking ourselves those questions during the week. You'll stand with me, please.